by my calculation, and I made this calculation quite a way back, for every GP retiring today, you need to replace them by 2.2 GPs to take into account the increase in complexity, the increased hours that GPs have to provide care, and also the increase in the number of places that GPs have to provide that care. There's a lot going on in the world at the moment. So if you're not in the UK, you could be forgiven for not knowing that we're currently in the middle of a general election campaign here. Polling day itself is the 12th of December, and from now until then, we're going to be bringing you a weekly election-themed podcast. We want to help you make sense of all the promises and pledges, the claims and counterclaims that are being made around healthcare and the NHS out on the campaign trail. The mess around Brexit is what's forced the government to call this election, but the main parties have been determined to make it all about domestic issues, and so far, the NHS has been right at the heart of their campaign pledges. We're going to try to unpick some of those pledges and claims, to expose the massaged figures and woolly thinking, and to look at the gap between the promises that politicians are making and the reality for those working in the health service. This week, we've seen a range of pledges and claims around general practice, and we want to look at those and try to work out where the reality lies. I'm Tom Moberly, the UK editor of the BMJ. I have with me Abby, the BMJ's careers editor, who is here with the facts. And to talk over the issues, I'm joined by two working GPs, Rebecca Rosen, who is a GP in Greenwich and a senior fellow in health policy at the Nuffield Trust, and Claire Gerardo, who is a GP in Lambeth and a BMA council member, as well as being former chair of the Royal College of GPs. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. Hi there. And Claire, you were here just last week talking to Dunk about the Practitioner Health Programme, so welcome back. Thank you very much. I'd like to start first by looking at some of the promises that are being made around GP recruitment. We know that politicians see the problems people report in being able to see a GP as a key issue on the doorstep. And both the Conservatives and Labour have promised to increase the number of GP training posts. Abby, could you just explain exactly what the parties are promising on this? Thanks, Tom. So the Conservatives have promised to deliver 6,000 more GPs by 2024-25, and that's part of their pledge to provide 50 million more appointments in GP surgeries every year. So as part of that pledge, they're promising an extra 500 GP training places a year from 21-22, which would bring trainee numbers up to a total of 4,000. Whereas Labour have pledged to increase GP trainee numbers by around 43% from 3,500 to 5,000 places. And is it just GP numbers they're trying to increase? No, the Conservatives are pledging an additional £300 million a year to provide 6,000 more nurses, physiotherapists and pharmacists in general practice by 2024-25. I don't actually know what Labour have pledged. I don't think they've been specific. No, No, I don't think they have. Okay, thanks Abby. And Rebecca, what's your take on these pledges? Well, I think one has to welcome the aspiration of recruiting so many more GPs. They're certainly needed. But I think we also have to be quite sanguine and look back at the the New Deal for General Practice, which Jeremy Hunt announced, the GP Forward View. Both of those offered something similar and they haven't yet managed to deliver. It's a hard thing to deliver. And I think one of the crunches is going to be whether they can make general practice look attractive. So I think it's promising that both parties are talking it up. We've had many years where it's had a lot of negative press and that can only make it harder to recruit. But I think we have to see the reality in action to make sure that those people who are just entering medical school, coming out of medical school now, think that it's an attractive um, 
proposition. Mm. And to increase the number of GPs, I mean, you need to increase the number of GP training posts, but also medical school places yeah. and foundation training posts. And well, have the parties looked at the detail of those kind of things as well? I'm. I don't. I don't think they've made announcements on it. But certainly, over the last few years, we've seen several new medical schools open up, and I've kind of poured over their curriculum, and they are quite interesting in the way they are building in community-based care, building in general practice placements from the very start, and that's great. Um, you know, I think it's really important that that from the very beginning, trainees get to see what working in the community is like. It's a, it's a you know it's a whole different take from their um, hospital training and and um, I think that will help. But the we also know from research that we've done at Nuffield jointly with the Health Foundation and the Kings Fund that even if you get people into the front door of GP training, um, only three out of four who start the training actually end up working as GPs in this country, and then among them two thirds choose to uh, work part time. So it's a you know it's a it's a challenge, but it's a uh, I guess the the aspirations in the right direction. There is some funding uh, allocated to it, uh, but it's going to take a lot of hard work to make it actually come to fruition. Mm. So Rebecca mentioned there that we've been hearing from politicians for a long time about these pledges to increase the number of GPs, and those plans always fall short. Claire, why why do you think that is, and, and what needs to happen to increase GP numbers? What do we need to see happening? Okay. First of all, building on what Rebecca said, why does it not happen? Because what tends to happen is you then get lobbying. You get lobbying by the cancer group, by the Parkinson's group, by the stroke group, by anything that's in hospitals. So in other words, we get lobbying by the hospital group. And then we move after election time to what actually the NHS is, which is in many people's eyes, a national hospital service rather than a national health service. I'd like to tell people listening to this from where I stand looking after doctors and and that the doctors that are genuinely and seriously and probably uniquely under the most stress, and by that I mean burnout, depression, uh, anxiety, are general practitioners. They are keeping the NHS afloat at the moment. If general practice fails, the whole of the NHS will fail. Now, when I was chair of the Royal College of GPs back in 2012, I calculated that we were 10,000 GPs short. That works out at just over one GP per practice. So it's not significant numbers, but it's uh, collectively it's a large number of uh, numbers. Why I think we never get any movement on this is, as I said, I think funding tends to go to hospitals. But also what tends to happen is that uh, we get more and more work put upon, upon GPs because, of course, we are highly skilled, probably the most highly skilled of any country's general practitioners. And we do it well. The government says jump and we say how high. If you look over the last eight years, and these are figures just out, there's been a 16% increase in the number of hospital consultants versus a 1% increase in the number of GPs. And that is against a decade when more and more work, more and more complexity is being pushed to general practice. By my calculation, and I made this calculation quite a way back, for every GP retiring today, you need to replace them by 2.2 GPs to take into account the increase in complexity, the increased hours that GPs have to provide care, and also the increase in the number of places that GPs have to provide that care. So I'll say that again, for every doctor, every GP retiring now, 
they need to be replaced by 2.2. If we don't replace them, then I'm afraid uh, the pledges are good pledges. But if we don't follow through with those pledges, I I think the NHS will collapse. And um, a lot of these pledges are focused on creating new GPs, training new GPs. But obviously we know there's a real issue around... GPs retiring before they want to, people not being able to come back from career breaks, often from maternity. What what more can we do yeah, there we, around? We, we, Tom, have created a, a, a problem for ourselves. Our profession has created it. We're the only profession, by the way, the only spe- specialty, that if you spend two years and one day away from it, you have to go back through a very complex retraining programme. If you go away as an obstetrician for three years, four years, a friend of mine went for eight years, you have to do a sensible re-entry, but you don't have to go through and redo an exam and redo uh, uh, placements, which are virtually impossible to find in general practice. And unless you're on particular schemes, uh, they're also very expensive. So we have created this. We've also created, I think, a problem by having the shortest training for any GP in the world. So we only have three years. Yet, as I said before, we have the most uh, complexity. We have GPs doing more in this country than any other GP. We look after patients from cradle to grade. Virtually no other GP does that. So we have created a problem. And to be fair to the Royal College of GPs, of which I'm a council member, we are trying to sort it. But unless we start to sort out this nonsense that we cannot get doctors uh, into the system unless we put them through a complex re-entry. The same with with retirees. We have both the performance list and we have the GMC register. So we have duplication of, of if you like, a, a registration process, which adds much more complexity for GPs compared, say, to your average surgeon, your average uh, neurologist. And Rebecca, do you see some of those challenges in the workforce being unique to general practice, that it's facing some particular challenges there? I agree with the things that Claire has highlighted. I think that uh, I'd I'd give a slightly different uh, response, which is that um, we're not at all imaginative in the way that we think about retaining people. So Claire's already talked about the really significant stress in the day-to-day work of general practice. And as you get older, your capacity to deal with that, it's never high, but uh, it probably gets a bit less. I'm sure that we're going to be talking in a few minutes about the new roles that are coming into general practice. Our experience in my practice is they need supervision, they need support, they need quality assurance. Those are things that actually we could be getting the GPs that are close to burnout, that are thinking about stopping, to take that on as part of their role. Around the country there are some really interesting um, sort of marginal services like GPs who run memory clinics with uh, colleagues close to retirement who've got an interest in dementia and memory. I think there's loads more we could do about that, which would retain the skills in practice, really help to develop the people coming into new roles and, um, and you know, just, just keep people working and, for and longer. I, I absolutely agree with you, Rebecca. The problem is funding it. And, and the, the GP, you know, I've reinvented myself every five years. I have a fan- fabulous job. But it's It's our core contract is wrong. And I wish somebody would actually look at the core contract. I think the way we paid and many people, again, listening to this will know that I think we should be have a a national salaried contract that defines what we do a little bit the same as, as consultants in hospital. Notwithstanding, I still think we should form partnerships or groups together. But I think we need to move away from this idea that a partner has to do everything because that's the way our contract is. But I think we've done this in many ways to ourselves. I think we've boxed ourselves in 
by the short training, by the fact that we we have, as I said, a, a different set of rules compared to other hospital doctors. And I think we've also boxed ourselves in where we can get other people to come and work in general practice. So, for example, we can get pharmacies, uh, pharmacy assistants, uh, uh, different types of nurses, physician associates, etc. But the sort of people we can't get in are people with hospital consultants. We can't, for example, unless they're seeing people we've already referred to them. Now, I'm not going back to the days when my father, for example, stepped straight into a GP job without having any training, but I think we need to make it much more flexible to have hospital doctors able to do frontline general practice alongside us, just like I do in accident and emergency department when I go and do a session in my urgent care. So can I just come back on that and Mm. return us to the issue of the election? Mm. So I think the challenge is that politicians um, dress up their narrative about about general practice in around the issue of access and it's a very limited and it's a very transactional view of people with acute illness who kind of want to be seen quickly Mm. Um, and that if you know if I could wave my magic wand it would be to ask the politicians to inform themselves enough to have a much more sophisticated approach to what they're saying so picking up on what Claire just said we have had recently a renal physician coming and doing a placement in our practice it was absolutely fantastic it's about building the links between community and hospital that have been lost it's it was interesting for him it's about seeing each other's worlds differently now that's probably too sophisticated for what you might hear in a general election but what concerns me is that the the nature of the narrative is we have to get people through general practice fast and we have to get general practice to stop get, allowing people to go to A&E when it's actually often not in our control and actually to see general practice in a much more holistic way yes part of it absolutely is about acute access but to you know that bedrock that it offers to the nhs is actually much more about the relational continuity the relationships with specialists in hospitals and you know i'm delighted to hear about the extra funding that both parties are offering to the service but also slightly terrified that it's going to just be a set of money that's going to require us to run faster and deliver access faster. Um, increasing GP numbers is just one of the pledges that the around the NHS that the Conservatives and Labour are making. And um, there are a set of other ones. Abby, could you just talk us through some of those other sort of key headline ones? Yes, yeah, so briefly, I think you'll be aware that um, Boris Johnson has said that the Conservative government will build 40 new hospitals. Um, I think he's starting with six and then the rest will come later. In terms of what Labour is pledging on the NHS, They've discussed increasing budgets for um, health, training and education. They've also pledged to make prescriptions free across the UK and to make hospital parking free. And Rebecca, to your point that the the, uh, increasing GP numbers is kind of entirely predicated on them wanting to talk to people about, I can't see my GP, you know, it's kind of quite a simplistic thing. Those seem to speak to quite, you know, just someone moans, here's a solution to it, you know, I'm complaining about this, here's a, rather than a sort of more sophisticated understanding. That might just be the way that plays in the papers, but what's your kind of feeling on those pledges tallying with the the sort of the challenges you're facing day to day? Yeah, so I think they're inevitably presented in quite a simplistic way. But one thing I have observed over the last, I would say, five years is that as hospitals have been running on tighter and tighter budgets, lost their administrators, lost their secretaries, the day-to-day work of becoming a GP has become harder and harder and harder by virtue of kind of 
spin and 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 some chaos at times in the hospital sector if you know if somebody hasn't got an appointment and we try and ring up and help them to get one now you might get through to an answer machine 15 times and and then a temp who doesn't know what's going on so the idea of investing in the hospital sector um in uh i think a lot of the um in the the kind of nhs plan transformation plans require investment in capital in order to help services run more smoothly so it's a bit indirect for general practice but i really do think it's important and then something like car parking will have an immediate impact on on patients and carers without I mean that's that is such a struggle if you have to go for four hours of radiotherapy and it's going to cost you 25 quid in parking so I, I yeah I, I absolutely welcome that and Claire what, what would you think of the policies that are being offered and what what would you offer if you if you had a, a blank piece of paper for a manifesto well I mean right across the political parties I'm really pleased uh, that the NHS is yet again becoming an important topic and it's and I'm really pleased that all of them uh, right across the board are, are pledging more GPs what would I want if I was to put it in and I think I have an anxiety that we're creating a whole diff- a whole new army to support GPs and let's talk about general practice when we've got a fabulous army that has depleted and that's mainly district nurses and uh, health visitors and when I started general practice we had health visitors that cared for the elderly as well as health visitors that cared for the under fives and we created this was 30 years ago we created a risk register for those frail elderly in those days they were about 80 years old now they're about 95 we created a whole uh, program the health visitor the elderly health visitor would do we had district nurses who uh, kept the practice together because they were our eyes and ears out into the community and, and not back and i think whilst i think the new workforce is welcomed i think and whilst i think there have been pledges about more nurses what i would really like to see is i'm going to say it is practice-based uh, district nurses again PCN-based health visitors and a much closer relationship between these staff and our practice and greater numbers. Can I I just come back on the other roles? Um, Because I didn't really answer that question. So um, I I think they can have a fantastic part to play in practices. So in my own practice, we've now got a paramedic who has um, enabled us to free up 150 extra appointments a week. And we have a pharmacist uh, who is... Uh, a core part of our team but also helping to reduce our workload to some extent Um, the the risk of that is denuding uh, the ambulance service of the paramedics they need we've got a a, a musculoskeletal specialist Uh, can the hospital physio department staff their staff their their services so uh, it's kind of we've got to be careful about robbing peter to pay paul but um, the idea of the practice-based or PCN-based multi-professional team in which nursing, health visiting is going to play a central part, absolutely. But we've, you know, we've just got to remember there are shortages across the board. Absolutely, uh, Probably because I've just reached a big birthday. Uh, <laughs> I've been reflecting on my career and I still think we had more of the future 30, 15 years ago than we've got today. So I remember 15, 20 years ago, 
we used to have a, a weekly MDT and we used to get the beat officer, the police mm. beat officer, the community development worker, the housing officer. Now, these weren't employed by us. They were just part of what was the primary care network, which wasn't really called that anymore. So I think Rebecca's absolutely right. We've got to start doing this bottom up, but with an eye that we don't uh, we don't make shortages in other ways. But I would like the political parties to sort of pledge no more reorganisation or if there is a reorganisation that it's it's done with what patients need in mind rather than reorganisation because it, it looks good and somebody wants to, to make their mark. And so it's about what are we trying to deliver for patients going forward. We want access. We certainly want continuity, which I think has, has slightly gone out the window. And we want to try and keep patients to stay as healthy as possible for as long as possible and to die at the place of their choice. And if we work to that as our basis, then I think, and set the standards against that, then I think other things would fall out rather than what it feels at the moment, which is almost like a Christmas tree. Let's put little more dangly things on it rather than thinking, well, the Christmas tree may fall over if we keep on piling this and it actually doesn't look nice and it won't work well in the end. And I think, uh, to, to be fair to politicians, I think politicians, some of these pledges are in response to what they see yeah, as absolutely. Pa patients, the voters' needs. Do you think there's a gap between how they see a kind of, uh, I guess they have, you know, um, cartoons of who they see as their different voters or whatever, and their concerned patient that they're making some pledges up in response to their concerns? Or whatever. How do they differ, from, do you think, from the, the patients you're seeing that they're kind of trying to appeal to? I'd give you a response to that that's slightly backwards. Mm. So one of the things that I'm fascinated by is the kind of deafening silence about digital. So we have had three, four, five years now of digital is going to answer everything. It's embedded in the contract. It has a huge number of roles to play. But I'm absolutely fascinated by the absence of any reference to what they're going to do about digital general practice and I can only assume that in their focus groups as they've asked about this because they've been fizzing with enthusiasm about it that actually they found what we've seen in the in the general practice survey 13% of people used it last year 15% report using it this year so there are subgroups okay. that want it but then other subgroups who appear not to so I've been very surprised that it hasn't uh, been more uh, prominent in what they uh, say. Uh, Just in answer to Rebecca I, I think in my mind, what's holding digital back isn't the patients, it's the doctors. It's And this was the same a little bit when we all went to electronic records. It's the doctors that like to use digital in their banking, in their holidays, but are very reluctant to use digital when it comes to patient care. I do have a conflict of interest because I my practice runs a, a digital front end for patients, a way of consulting with patients. And we've just recently, after a long period, a long lead in time, essentially pushed as many patients as we could can through a digital front end and one of the doctors who works there was absolutely stunned it went from a, on a monday morning with only one patient in the waiting room now it doesn't mean that those patients don't need care but they can be done in a different way you've got some way of planning of mapping out what you need of spending longer with some shorter with the other so i think digital will work my mind though digital will only work where it adds, where you've got continuity, where actually you know the patient and then where they're linked with your practice. Sorry, I just wanted to, overstepping my mark as the fact person, but I wanted to ask you both a question on the pledges that we started by discussing, which is an increase in training places. And Claire, I thought it was very interesting what you said about how general practice is really one of the areas most under pressure in the NHS. 
and the Conservatives want to increase places, training places by, I think, 500 places, Labour by 1,500. Is there the capacity in general practice to take on those trainees? Abby, thank you for asking that question. It's not that we're not wanting. Of course we want to. But I currently consult in a, in a redesigned broom cupboard. And my uh, one of my members of staff in in a disabled loo that's been stripped out and turned into a consulting room. I don't know about Rebecca. It sounds like she's got pr- probably more space. But it's not so matter now that you have your own room or hot desking. Sometimes you you know literally have to sit on each other's lap. There is no space, and unless we get a fundamental rebuilding program, which we have to have. I mean, at the various stages in the history of general practice, we've had to transform it. We have to have a rebuilding program. We have to be able to, you know, we've had 50, is it 50 hospitals, new hospitals that's been pledged? 40, I think. 40 new hospitals being pledged. I really wish there was a pledge around the number of new GP health centres because how on earth can we co-locate or increase training I agree. I mean, you you asked me before about the capital pledge on on hospitals, I think, but I should have come back and said that it is really important in practices as well, particularly as people are aiming to take on different clinicians, paramedics, musculoskeletal. They need rooms to work in and um, that will be absolutely essential. Do you remember, Rebecca, the Tomlinson review way back when, when the, the pledge was then to build intermediate care hospitals and we actually had one in Lambeth and it was brilliant absolutely brilliant it was a community Mm. resort with inpatient beds 24-hour inpatient beds gp run and the pledge was to build all of these across the country and i think they built another one in brixton but the one we had in lambeth was taken over and it's now for a rehabilitation of 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 amputees so we no longer have it i think if we can go back to a space of rebuilding the equivalent of intermediate care centers where we co-locate primary, secondary care, social care, dentistry, physiotherapy. And wellness facilities, and wellness a gym, facilities. a cafe, a hairdresser. And spaces where you can spend the day, uh, either in a, in a yeah. comfortable bed, you can maybe have you know all sorts of therapy there. Then maybe that would work. So maybe this 40 new hospitals actually could be 400 new intermediate care centres. Thank you. Um, you talked earlier, Claire, about the sort of being um, pleased that the NHS was so high profile that people are looking at it having this light shone on it Um, and it's kind of front and centre at the moment in the election and I think I mean mean, Nick Timmons has made this point but if you think sort of 10 years ago people were talking about dismantling the NHS and then you know it was put on the side of a bus and seen as a key election pledge and now it's kind of front and centre no people are just talking about investing more and more money are you optimistic that that's kind of secured its future or is it being looked at in a sort of I I am optimistic Tom, I am optimistic. Whichever political party you're looking at, they want to make the NHS better, better resourced. And they're also, and I know there's a lot of rhetoric, but they're moving away from the privatisation agenda. The political parties uh, are looking in various ways about uh, repealing the competition, some of the competition laws. Do you remember Jennifer's ears? I mean, you know, I don't think since Jennifer's ear have we had such a focus on the NHS. And and it's not in a negative way, because many times the NHS is mm. a focus in the... In, in, as Rebecca says, it's about telling GPs they're not working mm. hard enough. It's failing. It's so. failing. Whereas this time, it's a celebration that, my God, aren't we lucky? Aren't we lucky that we still don't have to fear illness? And if you look at anybody else any other country really and truly 
they fear illness and we don't. And I think my response to that, I, I have to say, will, will centre on how they um, uh, approach uh, rebuilding the workforce, because um, they, while the pressure is so high, Claire's already talked about the level of stress that she sees in the sick doctor service. While the pressure is so high, while people, you know, there's, what is it, 1.4 million people working in the NHS, everybody knows somebody who they go to the pub with at the weekend. And while they are saying, I have had the most impossible week at work, it will be harder to recruit. If the people plan, when it eventually comes out, really finds a way to change the dynamics for the workforce and if the culture changes, because I think there's a really challenging issue here money may flood in but if it floods in with senior managers barking at the people below them and making life stressful and miserable we will not be able to address those workforce shortages and then I don't think you know I'm not optimistic if they are really serious about the cultural change the 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 the, the professional leadership uh, then I think uh, you know there is grounds to be optimistic yeah. with this level of of um, commitment and funding. And I think the noises from all the political parties is to change the culture. It's and it, I think it has. Been. They've said it many times. I don't they think I, I don't think I've managed. ever seen as I mean if we look at the people plan uh, and making the NHS the best place to work. That's never been centre stage. The people working in the NHS have never ever in my career been centre stage for, for mm. any any policy you know whatever happens I hope the, the the momentum that we've had over the last two years in terms of making the people that work in it feel valued I hope that continues. It sounds like you're both seeing <coughs> this election some of these pledges as quite a, a positive thing as a bit of a turning point in how things are being discussed and reasons for optimism I guess there perhaps. Uh, so I think that's that's the eternal challenge, isn't it? <laughs> Election pledges turning into action. And we're at a particularly uh, interesting time in, in political debate and political discourse. And finances. Uh, yeah, so... Um, that is the challenge. There are extraordinary, given given that we've just come out of a period of austerity, there are almost extraordinary commitments about funding and, and you know, great intentions. Whether they will continue after the election, I, I really hope so. But, um, yeah, I'm, I, if they stick to them, then I'm very optimistic. Well, Rebecca, Claire and Avi, thank you so much for that. As I said at the start, we'll be bringing you these election-themed podcasts each week between now and Election Day with a variety of guests from across the healthcare world. If you have any suggestions for issues we should cover or questions you'd like to answer, do get in touch. You can find the re- relevant contact information by going to bmj.com podcasts. I've been Tom Moberly and thank you for listening.